Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry that I can't be with you here in person this morning, but it's great to be um, able to record this message and have a chat with you all. I'm sure you're being hosted very well by Keith and Sharon. Unfortunately, we have COVID in our house, so we thought it'd be better that I pre-recorded this message for you. So um, we're continuing our series called Advance, and this talk this week is called The Urgency of the Kingdom. And um, we've done a number of talks. This is actually the last one on this series. And so we're just going to summarize very briefly. Brona did a little handy little slide last week. Um, thank you, Brona, which covers some of the points that um, these parables have looked at. So the first one we did was the parable of the sower and the seed. And we said the hearts which are ready to let go of our own kingdoms receive the kingdom seed of God and it produces a harvest. The second one was the parable of the wheat and the tares. We have to learn to journey, building the kingdom whilst acknowledging that the enemy is at work, that the two kingdoms are working together there simultaneously. The third one was the parable of mustard seed. We need to know that we need to be patient people um, who are waiting in, in the world for Jesus and the work of the Spirit in, in our lives, which will grow over time. The next one we looked at was the parable of the leaven. The kingdom usually begins with something which is small, but as it um, works its way through um, our lives and through the environments that we're in, it transforms everything around us. And the last one was a parable um, of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl. Uh, and we're talking about how the kingdom is worth giving everything for, that Jesus is our treasure and that we are his too. So um, there are a few parables in this section along Matthew, which make for uncomfortable reading. This is one of them. So let's read it together in Matthew 13 from verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and it caught all kinds of... When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the burning furnace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And so um, hopefully there's a little picture on your screen right now um, of some fishermen uh, of that sort of day. And they would have used very often when they were fishing weighted nets. And they would have thrown these nets down into the water. And as the nets sunk down, they would have gathered up all sorts of fish. And then the fishermen would have pulled these nets up. Um, and they would have dragged them up with great force when the fishermen decided it was time to do that. And so in this kind of way of fishing, you catch a load of fish. You don't get to choose which ones you catch, you get all of them, good and bad, and you need to sort them out. Some of the fish might look good to the untrained eye, but to the fishermen who know what they're looking for, some fish are healthy and edible and some aren't and would get thrown out. And this parable is actually very similar to another parable um, that we have done before, which was the parable um, of the wheat and the weeds. And we see um, in this one, which is um, from verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds into the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, so the weed appeared also. 
and uh, um, basically what happens in that parable is that the wheat and the weeds grow up together and the owner says, look, just leave it until harvest time and we will pick out the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into the barn. And Jesus goes on a little later to explain what that parable means. And so he says from verse 40, As the weeds are pulled up and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will come out with his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the burning fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So everything is harvested, the wheat and the weeds, and it's sorted. Everything in terms of the fish is scooped up in the net and it's sorted too. There are two opposing kingdoms at work, which is what this um, parable is a metaphor for. But at the end of the age, everyone will be caught up into the purposes of God, coming under his authority to give an account for how they have lived. And actually, there's another parable, which I don't have time to look at today, unfortunately, which talks a bit more in detail about that in Matthew 25, so in the same book of the Bible. Another metaphor, and it's called the sheep and the goats. I'd encourage you to read it um, at a later stage. So to understand this parable uh, clearly, we have to go slightly wider than these verses. And there's this little textual um, phrase, this clue that helps us to do that. And it is this phrase which appears, the angels will come and separate um, the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And this phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, actually appears in Matthew twice um, in these parables, but six times overall. And so when we go back a few chapters in Matthew, we read another story where the same phrase is, and I think it helps us to understand this passage a lot better. And it's in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 8. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew twi- chapter 8, um, you can look this up. Um, I'm so used to saying Matthew 28 because that's a great commission. But anyway, Matthew 8. From verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself and a man under authority where soldiers um, are under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's that little phrase at the end. So in these verses, we have a story about a centurion, a man who's not a Jew, but who has faith that would actually shame the Israelites, shame the Jewish people who who should put their faith and trust in God. And so Jesus actually says to his Jewish audience in this story, and if you remember as well that Matthew as a book is written to a Jewish audience to reveal the nature of God. And he basically says, people will be drawn from the east and the west. So that's people who were up until that point outside of God's plans and God's purposes. Not um, Jews, not the people of Israel from outside, like the centurion is. That these people will be joined, uh, joined in and be part of the kingdom. 
But the very subjects of the kingdom, the Jewish people, who have rejected their king, will end up outside. So Jesus goes on to explain this in lots of other parables, actually, in Matthew's gospel, such as the wicked tenants and the great wedding feast. And the rest of his life shows this too, the rejection of him as king by the people um, who were supposed to recognize him as king. And this was completed in his death at their hands. Central theme of Matthew's gospel is promise and fulfillment. God promises in the Hebrew scriptures to bring salvation to his people Israel and to the whole world. And that's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus the Messiah. So we see in the story about the centurion that those who think they are in end up being out and those that think they are out end up being in. And this is reinforced through the parables, the one that we're looking at today of the parable of the nets and the parable of the wheat and the wheat. And at the end of the the nets parable, we read the important verses which are on your screen. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked, yes, they replied. This is the Jewish people. Yes, we we understand what you're saying. And he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of a storeroom new treasures as well as old. So, I, I, first of all, I think the yes in this um, free, uh, passage is, is very funny. It's like, do you understand this? Yes. And, and it kind of reminds me of when I say to my children, do you understand this? And they go, yes, and they nod their head. But I know that they don't. They don't have a clue at all. And so we'll have to explain it. And so we see that probably the same sort of thing that these people are nodding. They don't want to appear ignorant about what these parables mean. But the fact that the disciples go and ask Jesus quite a lot, you know, what did you mean when you said this? What did you mean when you said that? shows that they didn't necessarily understand. But also Jesus told stories in parables because he wanted people who were really listening to hear, people who were really inquisitive to pick it up and to mull it over and to think about it and whose hearts would respond to the message. And so he says this, any teacher of the law, therefore a wise and learned Jew. So the Jewish people in his audience any teacher of the law, so like the smartest people, the really seriously religious people of their day, who becomes a disciple of the kingdom. So therefore, there is a conversion process required, right? They will be like the owner of a house who brings into a storeroom new treasures as well as old. So he's saying, although you guys you have this old treasure. You've been with God for, for centuries as a, as a people. There's this new kingdom. There's this new thing that you also have to get as well. And it requires you to become a disciple of the kingdom. It requires a decision. It requires a change, a change of heart. And this would have shocked the people of the day that their religious elite, who claim to be the true followers of God, are not automatically in the kingdom, that they have to make a change. But if you look through the entire Matthew's gospel, you will see again and again that the people that um, were invited originally don't come to the wedding feast or the people who were um, looking after a piece of land for the owner to return um, abused the owner's son when he came to uh, see them. We see this again and again that the people who once were holders of truth and holders of the good news lose contact with it and, and actually don't even recognize the Messiah when he comes. But the exciting news for those people is that if they do convert, if they do enter into the kingdom, that what they had before is not rubbish, but actually is fulfilled in the new, the old covenant and the new covenant. So this kingdom that Jesus is talking about 
is not something that everybody automatically gets to be part of. And this is the key. The kingdom of God has an entry clause. It is not by birthright, which Jesus stressed to his Jewish audience. It is ultimately something which is assessed by God at the end of the age. It's not about looking roughly okay, like the wheat and the weeds, or the different types of fish that kind of just fit it in, about being part of the gang or part of the crowd. That isn't going to cut it. We also know this because elsewhere Jesus says things like, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 3, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And another verses which are on your screen um, is Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So remember, the people brought from the east and from the west, as we read in Matthew 8. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so uh, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome at this time, explaining the gospel that it's not just for the Jews anymore, that all are brought into God's kingdom, but all have to respond to that, to confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord, to believe in their heart that Christ raised him from the dead. You don't get into this kingdom automatically. And Jesus came to this earth. He lived in a way that revealed the heart of the Father. He gave up his life so that we could be adopted into God's family. And the warnings in these parables about responding to the kingdom message are given to people who thought they already knew the way. And this brings us to the power and the urgency of the good news of the gospel. As well as presenting the true gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, we must expose the false gospel stories that exist in our culture. See, Jesus was saying to the people, um, of that day and to us now, religious behaviors on their own don't cut it. Church attendance alone doesn't get you into heaven, yet many people in our country seem to believe or act like that might be the case. Being a member of an association doesn't get you into heaven, and yet I've heard this narrative even recently from people in our own community who think that membership of an oath-swearing order will in some way impart salvation. This is a deception of the enemy. There's also the lie that exists in, in popular culture that I'm a, I'm a good person, some vague sense that, that we'll get to heaven one way or the other. And these ideas, they actually erode the wonderful, powerful, yet brutal work of the cross. In 1 John 1, 5 to 7, we read, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we live, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We are presented pure, holy in the sight of God because of what Jesus did at the cross. And so we must learn to tell and live the good news of the kingdom of God well. To show a life transformed 
and not just a kind of get out of jail, get out of hell free certificate that we keep in our back pockets for that day. Not responding to the work of the cross leaves people outside of God's plans and presence. There are dire consequences for that, as these verses tell us. The reason for this is because God is holy and we are sinful. These two things are incompatible. Um, There's a worrying trend in Christian practice and in some superficial theology to present God as this God of love without considering all the other attributes of God as well. Every time I read in the Bible about people encountering God, the God of glory, his awesome presence like Moses and Isaiah's vision of heaven, what I see is that it's not the God of love that they see initially, although that is the nature of God. It is the holiness of God. It is the holiness of God that leaves them undone. It is the holiness of God that should leave us undone, that he is other, that he is set apart, that he is so different from us, that it's only by the grace of God, it's only by the blood of Jesus that we can even come in to his presence. That so many people, when they encounter the glory of God, the manifest presence of God, they're on their knees, they're on their faces. We read in Isaiah's vision about angels all of the time worshiping God and declaring holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. And we cannot come in to the presence of God except through the blood of Jesus, which presents us holy in his sight so we can have relationship with him. And then we can know this God of love because he is that too. The idea of love as some kind of trump card actually makes a mockery of the cross. God's love is presented um, as a kind of make everything right solution. But if that is the case, then then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come to the earth to save sinners, to present us holy in God's sight. The cross leaves us in no doubt of the power of sin, which separates us from God. And that that separation of sin and sinfulness, puts us in opposition with God's holiness. But the cross also leaves us in no doubt of God's love that he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us so that we could come into relationship and be in relationship and remain in relationship with God. The very presence of God comes and rests and lives in us. And he is called the Holy Spirit. The clue is in his name. He is holy, but he makes us holy too. And this is a mystery, the covering of us by the blood of Jesus the covering of our sin, the presenting of us holy, but we know that there is no longer any barrier between us and God because of it, if we will respond to Jesus. But also that this begins a work of transformation in us, um, and we see that too. You know that the mustard seed is, is a seed of, of salvation, but it, it becomes the tree of transformation. We see this in lots of different ways. But one of the things that I just want to leave you with today is this sense of urgency. These parables remind us that there will be a day of judgment. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I know that it is coming, that there's a need to respond to the work of the cross, that we should give, um, that should give all of us the sense of urgency, not just to get into heaven kind of urgency, 
but one that introduces the reality of the kingdom of heaven in our lives now, that we can live that out, that we can live with hope, identity, and purpose, and we can show the world hope, identity, and purpose, that we can show them uh, something that is worth giving their lives for, not just for eternity, but for now as well. Um, Al, a few weeks ago, uh, reminded us that the gospel can be broken down quite simply and encouraged us to maybe download this and put it on our phone. It is the gospel in 30 words. So let's take a few moments to remind ourselves of what that is. Jesus is God with us. He came to reveal that God loves us, died for our sins, set up his kingdom, and call us to follow him he is returning soon. Being part of God's family brings the opportunity to know God. And particularly at this Christmas season, there's a sense with Advent that we're waiting. We're waiting for the coming Jesus. We're waiting for the coming of this baby who is God incarnate on the earth. But this baby grows up and he becomes a man. And this man lives a perfect life. And this man goes and he dies for the sin of the world. So many people need to hear that good news. And maybe there are people this morning who need to hear that good news, who need to respond specifically to the call of Jesus to give your life to him. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes into the world to bring complete peace, complete wholeness to our souls, to our lives, to our identity, and to our purpose. And that's a great thing. We should never sell um, salvation short. It is it's not just being rescued, but it is also being transformed. And our lives should look like something then. Early in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7, it says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so there's something about a true encounter with Jesus that looks like something in our lives, that we know Jesus and that our actions, the fruitfulness of how we live our lives, reflect that too. And I think that that is exciting because that becomes a powerful witness to the goodness of God out there to those that, yet, that don't yet know him. And so if you haven't responded to the work of the cross, surrendered your life to Jesus, you need to do that. Jesus is calling you to give up control of your life and to welcome him in as Savior and Lord. And that little phrase, Savior and your Lord, we say it quite a lot in, in church, but it's really, really important. You see, we all want Jesus as Savior. We all want to be rescued from death. But we struggle with Jesus as Lord. And this is what all this kingdom stuff is about. It's about there being a king, and it's not you, and it's, it's not me. It's someone else. It's actually about Jesus being the boss. A life with Jesus as Lord looks like us knowing that the God of love knows the best way for us to live our lives, and therefore we need to surrender to his will and to his purposes. And so we urgently need to take that message out to those that don't yet know him. 
So in this Advent season, as we are preparing to, uh, for the coming of Jesus, let us remember about this greatest gift that came into the world. But the work of the cross requires a response. It requires a response for salvation, but it also requires a response every day. It's Jesus Lord. It's Jesus Lord. It's Jesus Lord. And that's a challenge to us. It shouldn't be a condemning challenge because every time we ask the the question, is Jesus Lord, we're asking ourselves, do I want more of God's kingdom? Do I want to know more of his love? Do I want to know more of his purposes? Do I want to know more of my identity as a son and a daughter of God? But it is definitely a challenge. Just want to leave you with a couple of verses uh, from Hebrews 12, which speak of that challenge. And, and it says this from verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with, per- with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Let us throw off everything that hinders. You see, actually, that that is not just talking about sin. It's talking about anything that gets in the way of Jesus being Lord, of you living out the purposes of God in your life, anything that hinders. And so sometimes you find in your life, as God continues to work in your heart, that things that you thought were okay before suddenly start stop becoming okay. And something happens in your life that you change because you want Jesus to be Lord and you want nothing to get in the way of, of you living like that as a case, but also declaring that to those that don't know him. And the verse goes on to say, and the sin that so easily entangles. Uh, and we know that we need to root out sin as well. Why? Because Jesus is holy and he wants us to be holy as he is holy. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. This verse is very clear, running with perseverance. Again, there's that sense of urgency about God's kingdom, that there's a race marked out for you in your life that you have to live, and that we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus, a pioneer. He's gone before us. He's showing us the way, the perfecter of our faith. He's bringing change and transformation in our lives, and he wants to continue to do that in your life. And that is that's good news. It's good news for everyone out there. It's good news for everyone in here that Jesus is pursuing us with his love, that he died on the cross to bring us into a relationship with the Father. And we should never get bored of hearing that that is good news. And we should never um, just be sitting thinking, somebody else is going to go and tell everybody about Jesus. I don't need to do that. Sometimes people say to me, I'm not really an evangelist. Uh, And as if that kind of means that they don't have to share about Jesus to anyone else. And I think we're all evangelists. Some are just better at it than others. But can you tell a story about someone that loves you, who's changed and transformed your life, and is continuing to work to change and transform your life now and in the future, and that when it comes to eternity, you know that you're a son or a daughter or child of God? I think we can all tell that story. And I love it if we could do that more. And especially as we come up to Christmas, there's amazing opportunities to do that. So thank you so much for listening and be blessed with the rest of the morning.